2020 changed everything. In, in 2019, I would have said $100,000 Bitcoin, $150,000 Bitcoin would be the peak of this next cycle because I didn't think it was as needed. Now in 2020, I think all bets are off. Hello there from the Bitcoin Mecca of the world. Yes, I'm in Bedford, the United Kingdom. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with Brandon Quittam, where we are going to melt your brains. But before that, I've got a message from my show sponsors. Okay, so first up today, we have BlockFi. I was about to say the future of Bitcoin and financial services, but as I keep saying, it's the now of Bitcoin and financial services. Because with BlockFi, right now, you can open up an interest account and start earning interest on your Bitcoin. I am a customer, I've been a customer for over a year, and I've made over one Bitcoin on my BlockFi account. Also, with BlockFi, using your Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan and you can fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now access all their services on the go. And with so much coming next year, you really, really need to be checking BlockFi out. So if you want to find out more, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, let's talk about the mighty Kraken the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin, the best place for buying and selling Bitcoin. You want to know why? Well, firstly, they are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, and security is really important to me. They also have the best in class in customer service. So whatever issue you have, wherever you are, whoever you are, they are going to get that shit fixed for you. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have every tool you could possibly need. Whatever your level of experience, if you sign up at Kraken.com, you can start trading Bitcoin and it could not be easier. They also have a beautiful mobile first app so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so onto the show today, and I've finally, finally got a show with Brandon Quittam, and I've wanted to get him on for a while. I'm a big fan of his writing, and then he recently put out this tweet storm regarding the fourth turning, and it melted my brain. I was like, come on, Brandon, let's get you on the show, man. Let's do this shit. And you know what? The fourth turning is sat there. He sat there with my sovereign individual, two books. I know I need to read. I know, I know, I know, I know I need to read them, but... Brandon has you covered. So you're going to listen to the show, and you're going to buy the book, and then you're going to read the book, just like I'm going to over the holidays. This one is another one that's going to melt your brain. A little bit like my show early in the week with Nick Bartia. These two shows really, really twisted things up for me with Bitcoin. You know, I said in the Nick show, sometimes you know, some of the maximalists talk about their big, bold, like future plans for Bitcoin, where they see it going. And sometimes I'm a little bit like, yeah, but yeah, but really, really, really going to do that? And yeah, my brain ticks over a little bit slower. And by the time I get around to kind of figuring this stuff out, I'm like, okay, I see what you're saying now. And this one and the Nick show both melted my brains and really, really shifted my thinking of Bitcoin. I was already, I already had a lot of conviction. Now I've got more conviction than ever. Actually, I even went and bought some more Bitcoin today. So with this one, Brandon gives us a run through the generational cycles, what the fourth turning is and the role that Bitcoin could play in it. It's another massive show and a massive shout out for Brandon for doing this. Hope you enjoyed. If you've got any questions, you know you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to anyone, so do feel free to get in touch. 
Also, Defiance this week, our fourth episode of Chaos. It's been delayed for a week just to, uh, trying to get this interview that we want that's going to make part of the show. So that's been delayed, but it did put out an old Bitcoin show because with Bitcoin moving, I wanted the Defiance crowd to have something to hang their hat on. So I released an old show I did with VJ Boyer Patty, the bullish case for Bitcoin. So go check that out if you never listened to that. Outside of that, I hope you all have a great weekend. I love you all and I'll see you all next week. Brendan, yo. How you doing, man? You all right? I'm doing great, Peter. Thanks for having me. Hey, dude, look, I've wanted to have you on the show for a while. Um, and we've and I've been messing you around this last week, which I'm really sorry about. But this, I guess you're going to save me some time reading a book, hopefully, which I, I know that sounds lazy, but I like, I've got all these books that people keep saying to read, and I struggle to fit the timing because I'm already working 80 hours a week. I've got two here. I'm trying to get through. I've got the sovereign individual, but I've also got the fourth turning, right? And I was like, I really, really, really need to read this book. I think it's going to make a lot of things make sense in both my Bitcoin world and in like the world of making political podcasts as well. I think it's going to make sense. And I just had never got round to it. And then there you do, there you are. You come out with this big tweet storm and I'm like, dude, we need to do this. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. The fourth turning is, I, I can't believe how relevant it is. I'm usually quite skeptical of these type of uh, predict the future, see the patterns, simply because society is so incredibly complex. And anytime you're dealing with history and trying to look to the past to, you know, sort of predict the future, you run into selection bias. You sort of look for the little bits of history that you're trying to find and then build your case on that one. Maybe that's not a representative sample. That being said, um, I spent a lot of time with this material, and the more time I spend, the increasingly relevant it feels like it is. And so I keep using this as a tool or a lens to view the world um, pretty much every day now. And so that's quite interesting. And, and it's highly relevant to Bitcoin, right? Extremely, right. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into the thesis here whenever you're ready, but essentially this period is when we redo the exterior world. And a big part of that is the financial system, right? It's no secret that governments and banks all around the world are trying to figure out a way to redo the financial system because we mm -hmm. sort of hit a dead end. And in that time, all the population demographics, there's all these trends leading to that moment. And then all it takes is a catalyst. And we start to see increased volatility in society and people... Uh, decide that they don't want that volatility. They actually want stronger institutions because they see society sort of coming undone. And so these exterior world, the socio-political institutions, they actually do serve an important purpose. Now we can decide if they're needed forever and most Bitcoiners would say a, a free market, sovereign individual type world will be better. And I'm sympathetic to that. Um, but in the short term, the people want order. And so they're going to get it however they can. And usually that means through centralization of power and broad sweeping changes. And so I think that's where we are. And I think Bitcoin will plug really nicely. Do you think most Bitcoiners want that or most hardcore maximalist on Twitter Bitcoiners want that? Because, yeah, I know a lot of people who, are, who would consider themselves Bitcoiners because they own Bitcoin. And I certainly can't sell anarchist ideas to them. That's a good point. Yeah, no, there's the loud, there's a loud minority and yeah, they're beating the drum and there's no doubt that Bitcoiners in a sense, it's a very human thing. We outsource our expertise to people we trust all the time. Mm -hmm. It's just a shortcut. We can't think about everything. And so if people are looked up to in the quote community, yeah, some people will just spend their own thinking and just adopt other people's beliefs, becomes this 
this crazy thing and we don't really know what's real. So I think your point's real. I would guess it's a smaller percentage, a very small percentage relative to the noise. Yeah, I also don't know how possible it is. So so interestingly, I'm, in doing this other series about the chaos series about what's going on in the US and political division, which is relevant also to other countries, but I'm using the US as a lens. I've been going through Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, The Righteous Mind. Um, it actually says, it's a really good, I've got it here, the front cover. Is it? Why good people are divided by politics and religion. Um, and it's a really fascinating insight into into why this happens. And it, it's I've learned a lot from it. But one of the key things that came out, like there's a part of it where he's talking about... Um, Humans are organize, always organize themselves into groups. And the reason they organize themselves into groups is because the individuals end up being dominated and killed off or destroyed. So there's like a history of humans organizing together, which is why, to me, that you always end up with government structures. Um, and I always like the, um, the when Churchill said, like, <laughs> Uh, democracy is terrible, but everything else is a lot worse, right? I, I stand by like his comments with regard to that. So when people talk about anarchism, I, I'm like, well, at some point, if if you have anarchism, people are still going to organize themselves into kind of some forms of groups anyway. So I kind of just, I don't know, I'm I'm not sold on it yet. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And if you look throughout history, the invention of a city or um, Anything that we can do to essentially smash humans together in a tighter space, that's generally produced a lot more creativity, a lot more innovation. And the closer we are together, um, it offers opportunities to connect an idea with capital and uh, someone to run the business really quickly. And so they become innovation centers. They also Cities and, and tight groups also come at a high cost of um, all the bad things humans do, like violence or something like that. But all these, these institutions or, or tools, they're, they're kind of just technologies to extend the kin group or the in-group. And you can kind of uh, agree we're all part of the same tribe or the part of the same religion. And that allows uh, society to flourish because we do produce more new ideas. And what I think is interesting about going forward is that if we use the sovereign individual as a lens, is we have this new transition to the internet. Human, humanity is essentially uploading themselves to the internet into this global co connected brain. And through that process, maybe the physical location is less important. And that's sort of the thesis of that book. The logic of violence changes where you no longer need a giant nation state with the biggest army. Um, that's no longer the best strategy. Uh, you want to be a smaller, more nimble, more localized form of governance. And I, I think that's the, the smart approach, right? We can still leverage the innovation because we're still smashing ideas together mm -hmm. in many city states. However, um, we still do want to outsource things to uh, a security department or someone should do the education, right? The specialization is what makes us, is what creates wealth. And so I, I'm kind of sympathetic to what you're saying, but I think technology will just shift how we organize. And mm -hmm. that, that's what I see. Well, it's quite interesting, you know, maybe in a hundred years time, you're going to have you know, kids at school or whatever form of schooling there is, look in the history books and they'll tell of this time where we had these nation states and governments and we transitioned out of it. That That is a potential. Or we trans into, transition into what all the sci-fi films say, where we have like two dystopian world groups with their badges and their armies and <laughs> fighting each other. Uh, who knows? But okay, look, let's get into, let's get into this book because I haven't read it, but I kind of know what it's about. 
and I was referring to my bro- my brother to it the other day because I was trying to explain to him. We're trying to talk about what's actually happened with this election process, pandemic, BLM. Like, why has twenty twenty been such a crazy year? I was like, so I just showed him the quadrant of the four turnings to, to kind of show him it, and it, I could see like a light bulb go off in his uh, go off in his mind. So before we start. Obviously, there's these kind of like four periods which the book breaks it down into. That's my basic understanding. But how many, like, what is the historical basis for this? Like, how many times have we been through the cycle? Yeah, good question. So I guess the, the premise of the book is that society does not advance linearly. Instead, we society sort of follows these predictable cycles. You can think of it like a sine wave. And this is not a new observation by these authors. Uh, many ancient cultures observe cycles in nature. Biology is full of cycles in nature. The moon is our month. This, we go around the sun. That's a year. Carbon, water cycle. Um, and then modern people have observed other types of cycles, like Ray Dalio's long-term credit cycle, sovereign individuals cycle, etc. And so they're everywhere. And what these guys did was they essentially looked at demographics and how demographics shift and what that does to society. And I think it's important to realize that this is a um, broad strokes, generalized approach. And so the more time you spend with the material, you kind of understand the framework better. And it's more like squint really close and you can try to see the future. But the way I like to see it is it's a bunch of pendulums swinging throughout society. For example, uh, is labor stronger or is capital stronger? How do we raise our kids? How, How much do we trust our institutions? All these type of things just fluctuate over time, and that creates a mood. And, you know, the author identified archetypes for each generation, which is another thing that seems to be embedded in the human psyche. And there's all these different little angles at looking at society. And what that tells us is um, the most important thing, I guess, from a takeaway standpoint, is that roughly every 90 years, we go through a crisis period. And that's essentially society realizing that um, things have gotten bad. Our institutions, our exterior world, our institutions are decaying and we need them. And it's usually kicked off by a war. And so to answer your question, how many cycles have we seen? Um, the authors looked back about 500 years. And so it's essentially Anglo-Saxons uh, in Western Europe and then quickly turning into the, the story of America. That's essentially where it goes. And so the previous wow. four turnings would be uh, World War II. Um, yeah, so 1929. Yeah, because also you had then followed by the Great Depression. Exactly right. Yeah, so 1929, stock market collapse. Um, the 1930s, which is the Great Depression, the New Deal with FDR. We're doing all kinds of new changes that society's never done before that were considered insane only five, 10 years prior, like creating social security, unemployment insurance, FDIC. Um, and then that leads right into World War II. Um, and on the back end of World War II, we... You know, as we sort of saw where it was going, we re-architected the whole world again, created the Bretton Woods Agreement, the World Bank, the IMF, NATO, all kinds of these massive exterior world institutions to try to say, okay, we, we the clay is wet. We just went through this period. Let's rebuild in a way that's better for today. And so that was 90 years ago. Go back one more cycle. The previous fourth turning before that would be the Civil War, um, 1860s around there. And then you go back one more, it's the American Revolution. And I think there might be one more in the book, I don't remember. But it seems to follow this pattern. And then you can say, okay, why is that? And 
you know, we can go into a little details there. But the most important thing for people saying I'm kind of skeptical here is this is an emergent thing. This is a human property that just seems to come up through society. And human society is complex. We barely understand it. So I'm trying to be cautious when I make strong predictions here. Um, but the general thesis is that histories create generations, generations create history. And what I mean by that is the, the time period we're all born. Let's say we're, we're millennials. We're all born around the same time. So we're all imprinted by history. We're all impacted and we carry that the times we were born with us through young age. And then we grow up. And again, we have this well-defined generation that now starts pushing back on history. And humans do predictable things like we rebel against our parents. For example, the baby boomers, they grew up in the 50s. And it was this sterile, leave it to beaver, white picket fence, strong nuclear family, also low inequality, um, suburbs were built, all kinds of good things. But the young people realized, wow, my parents and all the old people are stuffy and lame. The music sucks. There's no interior world. And so they grew up and they just rebelled. They were given everything and they rebelled and created the consciousness revolution and campus riots, Vietnam protests, psychedelics, all that kind of stuff burst out as a response to the previous period. And so those are just some examples and how we raise kids. That's one more example. And then I'll take a breather. So in the third turning, um, let's let's save that for a second. But in the Gen X generation, they were born of boomers who wanted to be strong individuals. They didn't care about, you know, their children or the, the whatever. They just wanted to worry about themselves. So they underparent the Gen X kids. They become the latchkey kids, the bad boys, no supervision, etc. And now you see the, those bad boys grow up and they're the pragmatic, um, no bullshit, just like get it done type people. And then society realizes in America, at least, wow, these Gen X kids are horrible. We can't do that to ourselves. Like society's decaying. So the pendulum swaying the complete opposite way. And now all the millennials got overparented as a response. This is 13th place ribbons, baby on board. Everyone's a snowflake, that kind of thing. And then the millennials carried that story into adulthood and now we're all special. And so the point of that is this is an emergent thing. It comes from the ground up and these patterns shouldn't exist, but they do. And it's because it's a complex system and we just simply don't understand it all the way. I guess what you're what you're talking about here, these are cycles. And as you said to, you know, alluded to before, there are other cycles. There are financial cycles. Um, I was interviewing Lynn Alden recently, and she was talk talking about boom and bust cycles, which is basically a story of greed. And um, I think, it, I can't remember, is it like every 10, 20 years you have a boom and a bust cycle, but then you have a mega cycle. And I, do you know what would be kind of, kind of interesting? I wonder if those boom, bust cycles align with the, the four quadrants, and then ultimately the super cycle aligns with the... Yeah, with the fourth turning, because I feel like it probably does. I can imagine it does, because if you you talked about it before with like Bretton Woods agreement or the Great Depression, what's happening now, money seems to be a, a central component of all three of those periods. Yeah, so a couple points here. Um, first of all, Lynn's great. I'm really glad she's on Team Bitcoin now. She's yeah. a rational voice that we need and we get kind of crazy and evangelical and she keeps us grounded in a sense. So thanks, Lynn. Um, next thing is, so she brings up the business cycle. That's a five, 10 year thing. That's that's the small little curve. And then the long term debt cycle or credit cycle, which Ray Dalio popularized, that's every somewhere 50 to 80 years where we essentially break the money and we have to start over. You know, we take on too much debt. Interest rates go too low. We sort of trap ourselves. So we have to just redo it. 
And I think there's some overlap, like they're correlated. Um, and, you know, these systems, they're, all the variables are symbiotic. So you can't really isolate things very effectively. But what I would, how I would respond to that is, you know, I like using economics as one lens to view the world. I think it's one of the most powerful lenses. Um, mm -hmm. The fourth turning would say that the, the, the constellation of archetypes, meaning what type of people are at what age in society, creates this mood. And that mood you can use to determine how we respond to catalysts and how we respond to technology, how we respond to economics. And so it's a separate way to look at the world. And they would say that um, economics not isn't necessarily driven by this. Instead, it's a it's a human society thing. And then we steer the economics into those places. Right. So there, there are two ways to look at it. They're both competing for sort of the base perspective. And I don't have a strong opinion on either. But the more I spend with this material, the more I think that this um, it, it is just base human organizational thing. And I'm not sure what can change it. I think we can smooth out the volatility or increase the volatility. And I think that's what these financial cycles do. But I think we're still going to have opposing human forces swinging over time. And I think it's a good thing, actually, because if we overemphasize in any one category, like we're too orderly, then we end up with Nazi Germany, right? If we're not orderly enough, we might have this like, you know, back to the land, hippie disto or utopian thing that just crumbles <laughs> because we don't have enough structure. And so, yeah, I, I see it like a rubber band that we might stretch super far, but it's going to pull us back into this roughly consistent space. And that's good. I, I think humanity is a story of 1% compounding growth over time. Um, yeah, there's obviously periods of volatility, but that's a good thing. All we need to do is 51% mm -hmm. forward, 49% back every year, and we'll be in the stars unless we screw ourselves up somehow. Are we also heading for war? That's a good question. So again, every 90 years, we end up into this massive crisis period. And the previous three or four turnings have all been in massive war. We already mentioned those. And the question is, are we headed for total war now? And not necessarily. It, the, the thesis doesn't require war, but it does require some sort of catalyst that's large enough to mobilize the population to make massive change. And so... For example, the 90s and early 2000s, the getting was good. You know, people are making money relatively. Society's fine. There's no big problem. So nobody's willing to make a change. Now, in 2008, we start the beginning of the fourth turning, which is a, a nice analog to 1929. And then all of a sudden people wake up. You see the civic engagement skyrocket where previously it was very low. Hope and change. Make America great again. We have to make change. And so that's a period where um, politicians are digging their finger into the pain, making the pain sound worse in order to get reelected because the mood shifted. We went from passive, I don't care, to, wow, we really need some institutions. That's the supply of order uh, staying really low, but the demand for order rising. And so that transition uh, increases, increases. And then the mood is we want to make change, which is very clear in society. And then you have these catalysts. And since we're ready, all it needs, all it takes is a spark and we go to war. And so I'm not going to say we need war, but we do need something very large to mobilize the whole planet. I initially thought that COVID was going to be the thing. We rally around this, this big, bad thing. Everyone's working together on the same problem. But however, I, I think that became politicized. I think it's now dividing society. And I don't think it's going to be the force we need to actually make change. 
Uh, I think it's just part of the story. And so that leads you down a path of what could be the catalyst. We could end up in some sort of conflict with China or Russia, maybe fighting over the next financial system. We could see a black swan, some hacking, a terrorist thing, something like that. Uh, but I think that honestly and sadly, the most likely thing is another American civil war. And I know how crazy Whoa. this sounds. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't sound crazy. Okay, because a couple of things I was going to ask you is where where was the Spanish flu in relation to the last, and how much of a, do we know how much of a role that played in the last um, turning? Yeah, good last question. Yeah. That was in the 19, 1913, I think, sometime around there. Yeah. And that was firmly, firmly in the third turning. I think it was later than that. I thought that was in 1918. Uh, I thought it was 1918 to, yeah, 1918 pandemic. And then if you've got World War Two, uh, sorry, World War One. what am I on about this? <laughs> 14, that started to 1980. So it came straight after World War One. Yeah, which unsurprising, right? You smash a bunch of people together and globalize and all of a sudden a virus comes out. No surprise. Uh, but how I would evaluate that through this thesis is that that was firmly in the third turning. And okay. so that's considered the unraveling. And what another example here is uh, the Germans sunk the Lufa Soania, or whatever that boat's called, right around the same time period. And nobody, since we're in the third turning, we don't want to go to war. We don't want to make change. And so uh, the government said, the U.S. government says, oh, no problem. They sunk our boat and we're not going to war. And everybody supported that. Then you fast forward to uh, 1941, Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. The very next day, we go to total war, and the whole country is on board. So that's the difference between a third turning and a fourth turning. Fourth turning, we want decisive action, winners and losers, full war, etc. And so now let's go to the pandemics. In um, the Spanish flu, again, third turning, it, it just happened. Life went on. There was no centralizing force to try to make changes. There was... You know, there's little pockets of people trying things, but there wasn't a strong response from central government. Now, today we're in the fourth turning, so we see a little catalyst. And what happens? Extreme overreaction from the state. And many people, especially millennials, they wanted the state to step in and make massive changes for us to save us. And that's very indicative of a fourth turning. We sort of overreact to a danger and we try to squash it as hard and fast as we can. And this is also actually interesting is that a dig? Is, can I hear a digger? Um, can I hear a digger? Yeah, it looks like my neighbor, my windows are shut, but my neighbor is doing something. <laughs> sorry about that. I think we'll just, we'll just have to put up with it. Um, okay, sorry. Okay, carry on. Hopefully it's not too bad. Yeah, so interestingly, uh, with this pandemic, millennials had the strongest response begging for the state to go and fix everything. Right? And the millennial generation are collectivists. That's what our archetype is. We're the hero. We want strong institutions and we're okay sacrificing liberty. And so the millennial generation says, state, step in. We're yelling at our boomer parents to stay inside. And all that all that's going to do is it's actually against the millennials interest, right? Because our jobs are the most vulnerable and we're the least likely to be in danger. So lockdowns don't help millennials at all. And then you have these older generations, uh, the boomers and the Gen X, and they're far more independent. And so the boomer parents are saying, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want. And that's actually directly opposed to their interest, right? A lockdown's not going to hurt their job and they're the most vulnerable. 
And so you kind of get that juxtaposition of them doing opposite of what they should do logically, but it's because of their identity as that generation. So the, the Civil War is kind of an interesting thing because it's it's come up recently, obviously. We've had, you know, following the coronavirus outbreak, the BLM situation in the US, you know, we, you've essentially seen outbreaks of fighting let's say it where it's whether it's antifa or proud boys it's just outbreaks of fighting in some cities i don't think it's on as, as big a scale as the media represents but it's certainly happening and there's certainly opposing views and when people talk about a civil war like in my mind i was trying to i was trying to imagine i don't think it's, it has to be a civil war like the previous civil war i don't think it has to be an armed civil war if anything i think it could be a culture war and it's in some ways like a it's like a cold civil war, and I think I think that's potentially what's happening because there is so much division in the U.S. right now, especially be, you know between uh, the left and the right. It's like a win at all costs. Everyone's lying. No one can agree on any version of the truth. So it feels like it's a culture war rather than a armed conflict. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. And the first thing is that it will look nothing like the first American Civil War. There was clear sides, clear objectives. Um, this will be a quagmire of confusing, small, fractional, fractioned groups sort of fighting over whatever their ideological positions are. And I think that there probably will be some violence more than there is now. But I agree, it's not going to be this all out um, bloody thing. But there will be isolated periods where it gets really bad and it's going to disrupt a lot of American society if this comes to pass. And I think it's actually going to be somewhat similar to the American Revolution, which was a period where you have the patriots and the loyalists. Patriots want to leave Britain's rule. The loyalists are saying, no, let's stay with the, the monarchy there. And you have neighbors fighting against each other. And it was actually a really big problem. And um, people, historians, estimate that roughly only I don't know, like a third of the people in those 13 colonies wanted a revolution. The other people were either neutral or didn't. And so again, it's an example of a smaller minority, uh, the intolerant minority, that essentially gets their way because they're more extreme and they don't budge on their position. And so we could see some of that, although there'll be many factions instead of two. And to, to compare it to modern times, just for some data here to back up why are we talking about this, um, right now, there was a poll, 33% of people in the U.S. support violence to get their way politically. That's insane. Mm -hmm. And 25% of people support that their state uh, peacefully secedes from the United States. And so those are very, very high numbers. And I don't think it takes much more than that uh, to make change. And at the same time, we're seeing massive inequality and massive fight over the culture. And if we don't fix the inequality... The, the small guy is going to rebel. And history is full of these examples. And so the state's going to have to respond by doing things like UBI or slash student loans or whatever they can to quell the unrest. And so I think that that's coming. Um, simultaneously, I think the narrative for the culture war, whether people identified or not on the ground, is individualism versus collectivism. And that's the culture war that I see. It's what role does the state have? Um, do we celebrate individuals or do we expect everyone to fall in line for the greater good? And you can kind of see that playing out right now. And I think it's going to continue until the government figures out a way to slow down or inequality. Well, yeah, so the inequality is a really interesting thing because it's a pattern I've noticed traveling around the world with work. Um, I, I saw it quite distinctly when I was in Santiago in Chile. I went out to 
kind of watched the riots and what was going on there. And I spoke to people on the streets and they had a couple of key issues. Um, it was all triggered by a very, very small rise in the price of the the metro. But that's the transport that the um, you know, the, the poorer, poorer people from uh, the outskirts of Santiago used to get in to come in and, and, and work. But that really was a signal of kind of like wider issues. They'd had a re- reform to their pension system. They, I don't know if you know about this, but they couldn't afford the pensions anymore. So they just did a just did a cutoff. They, they turned pensions, pensions had to be private. But there wasn't any kind of anything built in for it. So, for example, if you were 55 and about to retire in five years or 60, you had no time to build up a pension. So there's a couple of key issues like that, especially with the corruption. People just started fighting. Now, I went out onto the streets and I was speaking to people about, you know, what their issues are, what they're upset about. And it was a lot of young people. And they were saying, um, I grandparents uh, have lost their pension or my parents are not going to have a pension. I can't afford health care and I can't afford schooling and all the kinds of things that they they expect to be paid for by the government. And I had this thing ringing in the back of my mind thinking, oh, but if Bitcoiners hear this, they'll say that's socialism and you can't have socialism and blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I had a real conflict between what I was seeing and what my experience with Bitcoin people, certain Bitcoin people would think. But it, it was a real lens. Like when I left, it was a real lens for what I've started to see elsewhere. You know, this growth in inequalities happened in the US as well. I don't think we've recovered from the 2008 financial crisis. Actually, my brother, who's helping me on a project at the moment, he just found something where the wealthiest 10, I think it's the wealthiest 10% uh, recovered from the 2008 financial crisis within like 10 years. And most other people didn't. So I'm going on for a bit here, but there's some things I, that really frustrated me when I saw in it. When I did my Mnuchin investigation, we were following the um, the funds. I think it was BlackRock, and they ended up building this huge portfolio of properties from foreclosures, which were paid for with the money from the banks that had failed, that had been uh, rebuilt. And and it was just like, well, hold on. There's a massive transfer of homes and wealth from the working people to the to the billionaires and. I'm going to throw one more thing in. Sorry, any listener thing, Pete, shut the fuck up. You've got to guess. The other thing is, we've seen it during this pandemic, is that the pa- pandemic has made the rich richer. But, like, I am seeing this, this growth in inequality. This is, it's, and, it's, and it's evident globally. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think you're bringing up an important point that most people aren't aware of, which is that uh, the natural state of history is inequality. And the reason is that people are of better talents. People work harder. Some people are lucky. And, you know, there's resource, resources are scarce and people compete. So naturally, we increase our inequality. That's, that's always the trend until you hit these really important points, which uh, there's a book called The Great Leveler, Walter Scheidel. He identified these uh, great leveler moments. And it's based on essentially that rich people have the most to lose. And so plagues revolutions, war, collapse state. Those are the only ways that we see um, decreased inequality or more equality. And what doesn't work, interestingly, is things like a financial collapse. Because just like you mentioned, the rich people recover much quicker. Uh, Political reform doesn't work. Tax reform doesn't work. The wealthy people just evade all the state's moves at a more successful rate. And so yeah, what, we're, what we need in this, this thesis actually aligns quite well is we need one of those great levelers. We need a plague. <laughs> or a plague and a financial collapse and a civil war all on top of each other, which is what fourth turnings are. Chaos, 
leads to more chaos and just the volatility keeps going until we hit a blow off top. You know, there's clear winners and losers and we sort of just get a little five year period to rebuild. And then we hope that rebuilding period lasts and we can build higher and, and better off of that new base. Right. So if we are in this fourth turning as such, where in it are we? Are we at the st start of it, the middle of it? Are we like, how does this, how will this play out? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I think it's important. We probably should have done this earlier, but I'll, I'll give you where we are in our current 90 year cycle. And then I'll wrap up with the fourth yeah. turning. And so the previous fourth turning 1929 to 1945, we went over these things, massive changes. And then you have the first turning and each one of these four turnings are roughly 22 years. So four quadrants make up a 90 year oh, okay. cycle. You can think of it like spring, summer, winter, fall. Um, he also gave names to them. So the first turning is right after a massive crisis. Everybody's sick of fighting. We just rebuilt the world and it's a relative peacetime. This is Pax Americana. This is the white picket fence. Then that period of time lasts again, 20, 25 years. And then you have this rebellion. And that the second turning is called an awakening. That's when the boomers, the young prophets who are born in peacetime, they rebel against their parents and they create a, uh, an awakening. So it's an internal revolution. They change religion, spirituality, etc. And you can go back 90 years with these cycles. This is the Puritans. This is any religious uprising all came in that second turning period. Third turning. Uh, this would be the 80s to 2008, roughly. That's the unraveling. So we just sort of uh, blew up the interior world. We changed culture and shift towards individualism, um, all kinds of things like that. And then the third turning is the supply of order, to come back to that, is down. Nobody wants order. And the demand for order is down. Again, we're, we're unraveling in society. This is when we deregulate businesses. This is when moral decay happens, crime rises, all these things. And then in 2008, the end of the third turning, transition to the fourth turning, we had this shock. And that shock creates the, the transition, which changed the mood from third to fourth. So 2008, beginning of the fourth turning. Now there's different stages. Most importantly is the, the fulcrum or the, the peak. I'm blanking on the word here, but the most important point is not, is not here yet. So we're, we're ramping up to the peak of the fourth turning, which I assume will happen in the next three to five years, maybe seven years. And that peak period is gonna be the big one. And so I don't know what that will be. And then after that, there's a three to five year period where we rebuild, which will end us right around 2030. Um, you know, the dates are can be off by a few, but that's roughly the number I'm using. And so we're halfway through the fourth turning, ramping up, and it's only gonna get crazier until it gets better. Okay, so I've got a couple of questions here. So the 2008 financial crisis, that could have, could that have been an opportunity to rebuild? Uh, but instead, essentially, we kicked the can down the road, didn't we? With, you know, stimulus packages. Or is that just like a natural thing that happened as well? Um, and we had to get to the point where we, with this financial crisis, which is a lot deeper and a lot worse, worse negative interest rates, you know, nothing, no, no bullets left in the monetary and fiscal policy guns. Like, did we have to get to this point or could we have rebuilt from 2008? Yeah, good question. So financial crisis uh, in, in and of itself does not create enough change. All it does is it's a temporary thing and it, the rich get richer. But what it does do is it changed the mood. People woke up from their sleep and they say, oh man, um, things are different now. It, it created backlash. And that backlash 
continued to push the society towards a new a new normal, a new path. This is Occupy Wall Street. This is hope and change. This is all these sort of counterinsurgencies to the previous period come up. This is universal healthcare, rise of democratic socialism. These are massive changes from the 90s and early 2000s. And that's called the regeneracy. That's sort of the new trend. That's a counter trend to the third. And that drags society closer and closer until there's this inevitable blow off top, which historically it's war because that's what actually uh, fixes the inequality and it creates strong institutions on the back end of that. And it, it's almost like society outgrows our institutions. We, they're, they're, they decay for some reason, whether it's because humans drive these institutions and humans get corrupted over time and then they just slowly decay and then we burn them down and start over. And what interestingly to bring Bitcoin into this one, I actually see Bitcoin as a potential new type of institution that plugs really nicely into the fourth turning because we, we need okay. strong institutions. We need something to rally around. We need a way off our financial crash, uh, the way it's heading. And we also need all the people to sort of buy in. And it needs to be this really sturdy institution that we can you know, rally around to maybe build on. And I, I see Bitcoin as that. It, it has all those properties. Okay, that's really interesting. Okay, we're, we're going to have to dig into that. So, okay, right. So in some ways then, could this pandemic have saved us having a war? Yeah, good question. That that was my so I read this book maybe six to eight months ago, and when wow. we had COVID, my original thesis for the essay, uh, which there's a tweet thread and a ten thousand word essay on my website, but the the original thesis was Bitcoin breaks the cycle. It's the fifth turning, and then I realized, okay, this thing's emergent. It's not going to be that. Then I thought, okay, COVID is going to be the the catalyst that we need, the big one. And it just, it could have been, it could have been, but instead it fractured society. Um, people don't believe the virus is as bad as they're saying, governments are overreaching all these things. And so it doesn't feel like the society's aligned enough to make sweeping changes. However, I could be wrong. Um, COVID could be around for a while and it could be the central narrative that gets us to redo society. But I don't think it's going to be. I think we're gonna see something bigger. Do these fourth turnings happen in lots of different countries? Like, uh, and are they aligned or are they aligned now? So, for example, if you looked at the history of the UK, would we have our own set of uh, like 90 year periods decided by wars as such? And as it got to the point with globalization, this is essentially a global fourth turning. Really important point. So in the book, um, he does not go into international uh, cycles as much. I think that He's a little Neil Howe from Hedgeye and another guy wrote the book. I think they're just more interested in the U.S. Um, however, he has done some writing about this. And I think what we're finding is that traditionally each culture would sort of be insulated. There might be some crossover, but the less globalized you are, the more isolated will be. Now, post Bretton Woods, post World War II, the world became very globalized. We, we're on a dollar standard. And so what's interesting now is you're seeing the fourth turning symptoms popping up all around the world. You're seeing a tremendous rise of populism. You've, you can just mm -hmm. go down the list. You've got Modi, you've got Duterte, you've got the Yellow Vest movement, lots of places in South America. Um, all over the world, this is happening. And also, and I'm not a China expert by any means, but China's also demonstrating fourth turning tendencies. And so what this could mean is the whole world is actually on the same game. 
And that would, to me, that means we're going to have even more volatility or at least the, the risk of higher volatility because everyone is ready for that spark and they're going to respond swiftly. And so we're not going to see a drawn out um, proxy war in the Middle East. That's a very third turning war. We're non-decisive, just, you know, don't deal with it. A fourth turning conflict is deadly, total war. There's winners and losers and we're playing for keeps. And so that that's quite concerning. However, I don't, I, I think that total war, like actual hot war is not as likely. I, I do think it's going to be each state sort of fracturing into, um, I don't know, essentially a battle over the internet and who's controlling it and do the individuals reign or the collectives reign. And it's quite scary right now because the young people want strong institutions. And that's a nice way of saying uh, socialism. They, they call each other comrade unironically. Um, they don't pay attention to history books or something like that. Um, but it speaks to the point that they want more equality and they want the state to do it. That's just their archetype. And so during this period, we do need to be careful. Every fourth turning, we flirt with totalitarianism. Happened in the U.S. in the 30s as well. The young people uh, were going down that path and we're going down it right now. And so I think Bitcoin actually is a counterforce to that. And I, I would turn to the... The idea that we can either manage society, a complex society, or coordinate society through free markets or through force. And obviously, Bitcoin represents free markets and a strong state represents force. Um, that's just how it plays out. And so we need Bitcoin now more than ever. Next up, I talked to Brandon more about the fourth turning and Bitcoin. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. So first up, we have sportsbet.io. Have you checked them out yet? Do you like a little flutter like me? Now, they are the best place for online gaming, and they're such badasses because they accept Bitcoin. But they don't just accept Bitcoin. They love Bitcoin. I've told you this. I've been over to Estonia. I've hung out with the team. I've seen all the work they've done to promote Bitcoin, putting a Bitcoin logo on the Southampton shirt so billions of football fans around the world are seeing it. And they've got so much cool and interesting stuff coming next year. And do you know what? I'm going to start having a little flutter soon. Now, if you are interested in finding out more with Sportsbet, they have every market you could possibly be interested in, from the Premier League to US Sports to so much more. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions and you can find out more. That's S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And lastly this week, but definitely not least, definitely, definitely not least, is Casa because they are crushing Bitcoin security. Now, with Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. And with Bitcoin mooning, some of you might have been like I was a few months ago, sat there with a single hardware wallet with a key hidden somewhere thinking, I'm going to fuck this up. I knew I was. I really, really was worried. So I reached out to Nick Newman, the CEO, and I was like, Nick, we've got to get this sorted. Help me out, man. And he did. I've been signed up for six months now. I love it. I've got so much peace of mind being a Casa customer. And when it comes to renewal next year, I know Nick's going to be like, yeah, Pete, you can have it for free, but I'm going to pay. It's well worth the money. Now, whatever Bitcoin you are, Casa has a product for you. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that's only going to cost you $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their three or five multi-sig, which is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders, and that comes at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering, including a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best-in-class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. Find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. 
So the populism thing is quite interesting because I, this morning I was um, reading an article on the Financial Times. Um, yeah, let me get it up so I can just because I think this is important. Uh, the reason I was looking at it, I don't know if you've followed any of this. I call it a Trump series. It's not really a Trump series. It's it's more about political division in the US. But originally, the original title, working title, was the Accidental Dictator, where the accident was. Trump becoming president because he wasn't intended to become president and the fact that he therefore turns into a, a dictator and his dictatorial tendencies. Now, it's a very tricky subject to deal with because politics is so attached to identity. If you accuse uh, someone like Trump of being a potential dictator, people are insulted by that and they call you a fucking idiot and blah, blah, blah. You don't know this. You don't understand that. But, um, but I do firmly believe in a weaker state um, Trump could potentially be like an Orban or a Erdogan and and just assume the power of the state. I believe that's a potential. Um, but I started reading this article and it's the rise of the populist authoritarians. And it's really about authoritarianism is usually born in populism. And this is the interesting thing about Trump. He, he is certainly a populist. Um, it was really Steve Bannon's strategy and everything he is doing appears to be playing into those into those books. And I read an oh God, I wish I had the thing. I read a thing recently about the number of people with Republican values who aren't scared of authoritarianism or believe authoritarianism is. You talked about violence, but this was about authoritarianism as a goal, as a method to achieve your goals, and. I think, and it's I can't. It's very hard to articulate this, but we're in a situation now with a highly contested election, where from where from my lens it feels like Trump has lost the election. Yeah, he just did get enough votes, and it feels like they are using every possible means within a robust U.S. Constitution and legal structure to try and hold on to power. Um, and I am. When I talk about the potential of him to be a dictator, what I mean by that is I think there's a potential for him to try and hold on to power despite the election result. And I think it's a real risk. But when I talk to anyone who's Repub who's voted Republican, voted Trump, absolutely dismisses this or even seems to support what Trump's doing and believes what he's doing is right and correct. And But, but they believe it in, in the lens that the, the election's been stolen rather than seeing it in the lens that he's trying to claim victories for something he hasn't won. I haven't articulated that well, but do you, do you see what, where I'm going? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, there's no doubt there's a rise of populism, and that is captured during fourth turnings because it's a hot button by the left and the right. And so Trump is the authoritarian um, figure for the, quote, right, even though he's, he's kind of an enigma in politics. But his team wants law and order, and they, they don't like this unrest, and they're willing to give up power during this crazy time. And they think the big strong man should do, be the right guy to do it. And the left's on the same boat. They want a nice, soft figure who talks about feelings, but they're, they're getting at the same thing. They want the state to mm -hmm. step in and get their way. And yeah, two sides of the same coin. And, and sadly, humans are uh, pretty bad at having rational discourse. And we're quite emotional about our positions. And so it gets heated and, you know, people can't see IDI. Nobody's trying to learn each other's perspective. And so, yeah, it's going to get worse from that angle. Um, the Internet makes it even worse, right? All of our platforms 
or incentivized to create all this chaos on their platforms because it drives clicks. And so the incentives are there to even fan the flame of something that was already going to happen. And I'm, I'm not sure how it plays out, but I think that it's important to, uh, I think the young people need to do some history books, read some history books and, and figure out what actually drives society. Like you can't coordinate a society. Uh, a large society cannot be coordinated centrally. It just can't happen. Um, they're complex systems and humans are not capable of managing them. I don't think we're going to be able to manage them anytime soon, if ever. And so I think young people need to figure that out. And Matt Ridley has some nice books on this topic, but he has this quote that always stuck out to me, which is that innovation is the child of freedom and the parent of prosperity. Uh, in other words, freedom leads to innovation, which leads to prosperity. And that's just sort of the story of humans. And so I understand the desire to try to have the state fix things as if they could. However, that just that just doesn't work. And so we have to find solutions that are sustainable to our society. And I believe that's more of a free market model. And so um, there's Bitcoin again sneaking in. So Bitcoin again. But and it's a bit but it's a bit more than just Bitcoin, right? It is you know, I was um <laughs> interesting times. Um, can't go out because of lockdown at the moment. So I have to exercise in, I mean, we're allowed to go out and do one exercise, but it's freaking cold out there. So I, um, I've got virtual FX, the, have you got an um, Oculus Rift, Oculus Quest? Sorry. I don't know. Okay. So, um, it's like a, it's like a gym workout. You go in, it's like boxing and there's eight of you in there and you can see their like virtual hands and heads moving around and you're all in a room together, kind of boxing and, and stuff. And it's kind of really cool. I mean, I can't go to the gym at the moment, but it's like a really cool bit of exercise. But I was just thinking like the next generation on for this VR stuff where you know, me and all my friends can get in a room together and hang out and have a drink. I guess I guess where I'm going with this is that Bitcoin obviously is useful. But if you add into that mix where you said before, like you know, geography is less important, we're more likely to be group around virtual uh, virtual groups and i think something balaji has talked about actually with regards to this i can see where you're going with this that this next kind of rebuild c could be around bitcoin so you do you think bitcoin is like central to this i think it is yeah and the reason why is okay. because i think the money is sort of the base protocol of coordination for society it, it's just um among the best things we have to to drive society did you have a point there you wanted to no, no. So what, what I'm saying is like, um, I think what I was getting at is that we have multiple technologies which are changing society quite rapidly. A Bitcoin obviously could do a lot. I think virtual reality can do a lot. We're moving into kind of like 5G territory now and talks of 6G. I saw the first uh, report on 6G recently. Yeah, we started to have the technologies to do a real massive shift in the way we live. A bit, a bit like uh, Ready Player One. Like Ready Player One does feel like something. I make perhaps my children's children. They will be the kind of worlds they are just living in. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. It it just seems like humanity's onboarding to the internet, and we're becoming a network species, and that that's just the way it's going to go. Um, I completely agree, and it, it does bring some interesting points. Like yeah, democracy or democracy, uh, geography is less important. So what does that do to society? Are cities as important if we can bump into each other online? Um, maybe, maybe not. What, what does that do for uh, war and battle and nation state? Is your allegiance to your internet tribe or is your allegiance to your geographical borders, right? All these questions are gonna have to be reevaluated. And again, it, it, 
points to the sovereign individual thesis where the logic of violence shifts away from the large nation state and towards a smaller, nimble uh, city-state type model. And in that model, um, it's founded on defensive technology like encryption. So we can have encrypted money and no one can stop it. We can have um, you know high-tech defense type thing for a small city-state. So yeah, of course, the big city-state could still blow up the little, little state, However, you're not going to get any money out of it. So the incentive to go attack is pointless. Uh, the ROI on violence is going down. And so theoretically, we can have all these microstates experimenting with government, which I think is an important thing to do. It's been pretty stagnant. I think we have a lot more things we can play with here and iterate on. And so let's let a thousand flowers bloom. Let's let them compete. And I think that will create a more prosperous world with less violence. Um, because there's no incentive to do so. And if there's less violence and we base our world on Bitcoin, now we have clear economic signals. We have this foundational thing that's pure. And then great. What that's going to do is it's going to coordinate society better on producing important things. And that means it's going to reward people for helping humanity by inventing things and satisfying needs and wants. And so I just think it's going to be a slow downhill flow of innovation and wealth creation from Bitcoin. I have no um, no thoughts or delusions that this is going to be a snap your fingers and the world's going to be better. I see this. I see the real benefits of Bitcoin, the, the big ones we talk about, about changing society. I think those are going to take generations. Now, in the short term, I think Bitcoin will uh, become a large part of the financial market, but society is going to change slowly. And so it's kind of hard to wrestle with those things like Bitcoiners are going to be wrong about the future for uh, a long time. And then we're probably going to be proven right. That's what I would have to guess. And so that's kind of an interesting thing, like society moves slow and we have a we're just not very good at estimating how, how time goes. And so we're going to be wrong until we're right. Well, the timing's really interesting as well. It's, it's funny when you look at what Satoshi created, it's amazing how. How perfect it is in so many different ways in terms of the you know, the hard cap in terms of the you know the the halvings how important they are for it but you also look at the timing of its creation and perhaps that's a natural it was a natural was that created during the third turning um so interestingly bitcoin was created at the dawn of the fourth turning right january okay. 2009 and they say around 0809 the global financial crisis was the transition point and so bitcoin yeah. is a fourth turning money it was a symmetric response to the, the abuses of, of central banks, if we believe Satoshi's um, scripture in that sense. And so it's born in there. Yeah. It grew up during this chaos period. It gets battle hardened as it grows up. Now it's 12 years old. It's about to be a teenager and start to go out in the world. And now it's Bitcoin's true test, right? And I think it's important to speak of timing because if Bitcoin was born in the third journey, let's say in the 90s, there's absolutely no need for it in the world. It wouldn't have mm -hmm. it wouldn't have developed this hardcore base of people that shepherded it through the early days. It wouldn't attract all this capital and talent because it wasn't needed. And so the timing's perfect. Now it's going to go through its its sort of coming of age over this next period where the, the stakes are real now. It's starting to butt up into the state, right. which is going to cause all kinds of interesting things. Um, but I think it's well suited. And you can compare this against fiat money, which is peacetime money. Um, we, we invented our current monetary system out of Bretton Woods and then deregulated it further off of gold in 71. And so these are peacetime monies. They cannot handle volatility. And so they're sheltered. They're like, um, they're like a little Pomeranian 
and Bitcoin is the the dire wolf out out in the out in the woods. And so, in this period of high volatility, we have a choice to make: Do we want to double down on centralized money, MMT or whatever that we're going to call this next thing, which is again extremely extremely fragile, or we can go with this hardened sewer rat Bitcoin thing that eats volatility? It consumes volatility. All the world's going crazy. And the volatility just goes into Bitcoin's price, but nothing else. The system is not shocked by the volatility. And so to me, the, the trade is very obvious. We want a fourth turning money here that accepts volatility and benefits from it versus a money that fails with volatility. But some of the people who worked on the precursor to Bitcoin and some of the other ideas, that certainly that work would have started in the third turning, um, which is kind of interesting, I guess. Maybe um, maybe it's because those people could see what is coming and knew we needed something like this. Um, it's, it's really interesting as well. I did a really, really fascinating interview yesterday with Nick Battier. Do, do you know Nick? Yeah, yeah. Great yeah. dude. Um, it really shifted, again, a lot of my thinking with Bitcoin again. I mean, I, I, like I'm, I'm, I'm a convinced Bitcoiner, but we were talking about how, with regards to Bitcoin, how... It has a lot of secondary impacts. So, for example, you become better savers. You consider money better. It, you you consider what you're producing. You know, you become a. It's not that you become more productive, but the production that you do changes. You know, you it changes a lot about you as an individual. And it just feels like the timing is like, like with everything you're talking about, the timing of Bitcoin is incredible. Because if it had been ten years early, like you said, too early. If it had been ten years later, it might have missed the whole rebuilding process. It's almost like it feels it was natural. But the other side of me just thinks, are we just lucky to have this? Yeah, no, those are great points. And I, I think first to address the the precursor technologies. That's absolutely right. There was thirty to fifty years, depending on how you define it, of uh, prerequisite technologies that were invented. Um, but it's also interesting. Um, they had all the technologies ready to go for at least a decade, maybe two decades before Bitcoin. Oh, I think it's about 10, 15 years. All the technologies were there, but nobody put the pieces together. And that's, you know, again, if we use this thesis, third turning, there's no motivation to make change. People solve these little problems and whatever. But then all of a sudden, fourth turning comes and boom, here this thing is. And I don't think that's a perfect analogy because Satoshi was obviously working on this in 2005 to 2007, yeah. I'm sure. Um, but it is kind of an interesting point. And I think it what comes to my mind is this uh, strange principle in nature, which is symmetry, which is that um, sometimes, I don't know why this is true, but let's say when you create a um, bad technology or a technology for chaos, the atom bomb, the same year we synthesized LSD. Those are sort of polar opposite things that occur in nature. Um, at the same time, we have the 2008 financial crisis. The solution comes out, right? And so I know this sounds weird, but society is full of these examples. It's almost as if the collective uh, species, networked brain type thing or a complex system, it produces the things it needs at the right time. Um, if you look through famous inventions throughout history, the steam engine or whatever famous invention you want to look at, Interestingly, many people around the world were on the edge of discovering it all at the same time, but one person gets credit and that's who we remember. But if that person died, the other person would have came up with it six months later. 
practically at the exact same time. 500 years, no printing press, then five people would have come up with it within a six month period. That's really strange. And so I think it speaks to this complex system that sort of knows what to do and we're all connected. So through information spread or memetics, we shuffle resources and out pops the thing we need. It's quite crazy. So are you, are you kind of like watching everything that's happening with society and technology and politics and just going, yep, that makes sense, fourth turning, yep, that makes sense, rebuild, like is, it, is everything, is it like a jigsaw that's just, you're putting the final pieces in now? Yeah, so the short answer is yes. It made a lot of things in society make more sense. I, I no longer feel, um, I was sort of distancing myself from mainstream politics anyways, but this gave me an even more clear lens to see the games that are being played. And in uh -huh. some ways, it's like, is ignorance bliss? Like in some ways, now I'm more scared for my millennial brethren because they do control popular culture and they are trending towards a totalitarian state. And so I don't see eye to eye with uh, the median peer in my generation. And so that's kind of an alienating thing, kind of a scary thing. But in terms of like, do I see all the pieces together? Um, there's still a lot of down cards left in this fourth turning. I don't know what the, the peak crisis is gonna be. I don't know how the resurgent, or how, how we're gonna rebuild afterwards. And so I'm just on the edge of my seat trying to follow these forces that I see, but there's a lot of unknowns left. Okay, hmm. Let me ask you something. From what you've read of the previous cycles, have were there any other lifeboats? Because for us, Bitcoin is a lifeboat. What, like if I, if, I guess you're seeing what's coming. It's an inevitability for you, and you've got Bitcoin as a lifeboat for when the rebuild happens. You're ready. Has 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 there been other lifeboats like this? Yeah, good question. Um, I don't have a a, a great answer to that. Um, how? But how? Here's how I would explain it. In 1944, we created Bretton Woods. And so that's sort of like, we kind of know where World War II is going and we're ready to make this ridiculous change. And we more or less built it from the ground up. And I think anytime you try to build a complex system from the ground up, um, it's gonna have a whole bunch of unintended consequences. And so that Bretton Woods system, although it, it did solve, quote unquote, the problem at the time, it might've been the right solution at the time. But that, that trying to design a complex system from scratch inevitably fails. And that's what we're sort of dealing with right now. How I see Bitcoin and how I think this turning could be different is that Bitcoin is an emergent system. It was not designed from day one to be what it is now. It sort of evolved based on humans bumping into it and, and improving it. And so I see it as a, a slower, uh, nicer, smoother transition. And so I think that's the most optimistic approach we can look at in this fourth turning is that Bitcoin is the life raft. It, it takes pressure out of the system. And as people realize it and it gets bad enough, they're going to jump into this, this new opportunity that we've never had before. And so I could see theoretically this the first time we don't have a total war because people can get off the boat or get on the new boat. Right. And this happens at the in individual the level. If my life savings goes down, if my parents' pension gets screwed, or if young people have no hope, um, that's pretty bad for society. But they can sort of slowly adopt a Bitcoin standard, save purchasing power. It happens at the corporation level. Most corporations are not going to be able to produce a return on capital that exceeds the devaluation of currency over the coming decade. So they can jump in and protect their, their treasury. You can see nation states realizing, oh man, do I want to go down with the ship or do I want to shoot the moon over here on Bitcoin? And we're already starting to see this with Iran and Venezuela. And so it does offer this pressure release valve 
and that will lead to less desperation at all those those different levels and with less desperation maybe there'll be less violence and so that that's my optimistic take of bitcoin changing uh, the cycle slightly it's quite interesting because therefore the comments recently that came out was it the imf who talked about the great reset yeah i think it yeah. was the imf terrifying yeah it was the imf yeah um yeah ter terrifying but in some ways um a recognition that rebuilding is going to be required because the global economy is kind of screwed um so that's kind of interesting um i've looked into a little bit into the cbdc's on a practical level <laughs> they are very practical for governments um uh, for an individual level, for the likes of ourselves, it's dystopian bullshit. It is complete control over our money, um, the ability to see. You, I mean, you never essentially hold any money ever again. You just have a only ever have an IOU. Getting kind of scary. Um, so what would be kind of interesting is that we might have a play here between the rebuild, which is what the state wants to do, and the rebuild, what the people want. Uh, Bitcoin is really a person a people's rebuild of the money cbdc's is a state level rebuild of the money and you know i was talking to nick about this yesterday and i i as more people realize that i mean if you price cbdc cbdc's against bitcoin over time you would expect that bitcoin will always outperform the cbdc's because there will be no inflation therefore you would naturally start to think to people start to think well hold on i should be holding my money in bitcoin therefore cbdc's will either die or become worthless or the government would need to ban bitcoin so we might have this clash between the two this kind of that could could that be the war <laughs> the war between the war of the money very interesting point and yeah i think i think you bring up a good point first of all bretton woods or sorry a bretton woods 2.0 or a central bank digital currency new financial system whatever this thing is going to be it's going to solve some immediate problems it's going to be welcomed by the young people and then we're going to realize sometime later that all we're doing is supercharging the state, supercharging central planning of an economy, and it has unintended consequences that are bad. And so the point you bring up between Bitcoin versus CBDCs, I think, is fascinating. And I think that is sort of uh, the same thing as individualism versus collectivism. It, it fits the theme of this next crisis. And so I think... Bitcoin has uh, the long term. I think Bitcoin is the long term victor for sure. But I do think we're going to experiment with CBDCs and, and Bretton Woods. Um, there's still a lot of unknowns, though. I don't think the state can actually build the system that they want to create. Um, and so they're going to have to cooperate with someone. Is Facebook going to build it? Is Google going to build it? Are, is our government going to nationalize the big platforms like that? I think that's entirely possible. And you know, what about the fact that the world's kind of going isolationist? And so China doesn't want to be the reserve currency. They want their own central bank digital currency so they can trade with their partners without being without using dollars. It frees them to kind of do their own thing. And so I, I see a more multipolar world. I'm not sure if we're going to pull off a global Bretton Woods 2.0. I, I think it's going to be um, each state has their central bank digital currencies. Smaller states will um, use the regional standard and that's going to happen. And then, yeah, you juxtapose it next to Bitcoin and Bitcoin's the freedom money. I think they're going to try to gentrify Bitcoin. The state will. And but I think that ultimately they're not going to be able to stop it. And the risk of stopping it is is going to be too high. Now, if they attacked it immediately today, that's probably their best chance. But every day that goes by, more more powerful people adopt it. 
more individuals are on board, more politicians own it. And so it's sort of entrenching Bitcoin and making it harder and harder mm. to stop. And so I think that's something to watch. Like, yeah, we want a cypherpunk Bitcoin, of course, that needs to be preserved. We need people to be able to run Bitcoin, validate their own uh, transactions, all that. But we also need to have something, uh, have Bitcoin become too big to fail. And we need that threat of retaliation. And so I'm very supportive of um, powerful people, even unsavory powerful people adopting Bitcoin because they'll they'll go to battle when it's needed. And I don't even think we're going to see a war. I think I think what America is starting to realize is that Bitcoin is deeply American um, from like founding mm. fathers principles. I think that um, so there's a chance that Bitcoin sort of gets this pass. Uh, it's, sort of, it's sort of been underestimated. Then they're like, OK, fine, you can have your little corner and then it's going to be too late. And at that point, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that transition will go. The state will not probably like it. And so we either get a free pass like gold, Bitcoin gets sanitized, or they do try to coordinate an attack. Yeah. So it's that um, when you talk about freedom versus force, I guess I see CBDCs as force and Bitcoin as freedom. Um, I mean, you say freedom money. Uh, it's kind of also kind of interesting because we just had. Um, uh, the senator of Wyoming. Oh, I forgot. Why have I forgotten her name all of a sudden? Hold on. This is because I'm terrible with names. Ah, Cynthia, yeah, Cynthia Loomis. Yeah, I mean she's brilliant. I mean she, she's got good people around her. She understands Bitcoin. She's yeah, she's anti-inflation. Um, but that is that is a that is a senator who's a Bitcoiner, naturally from Wyoming, which is great. But it's 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 a bit like what Mr. Hoddle always says, like. Everything is going to everything is going to plan, but I think this moat is building up around Bitcoin now, and I think I'm less and less concerned. Um, I th I can't remember who I spoke to recently. Maybe it was somebody else said to me recently. I think we're past the point of it being banned. That too much money is in it. We're talking billions and billions of dollars. Too many people have got money, and you know, you've got your squares, your micro strategies. You've got companies like Kraken and Coinbase or built up, if the US was to ban it, that business will just go to other countries. It won't kill Bitcoin. But they will have a issue with people who, who I think they'll have a massive legal issue with banning it. Yeah, I agree. I think that the micro strategy trend, we'll just call it that, um, sort of he seems like the catalyst and definitely 2020 Bitcoin rookie of the year, Michael Saylor. Um, I think that trend's going to continue. And what what are you going to do there like if if half the corporations have some bitcoin in their treasury and you try to ban it you're going to crash the stock market um people are That's not going to stand for that in america and there's going to be lobbyists now on board like it's already in politics it's you know it's probably still a small point it's not a national conversation by any means but i think it will be and i think over the next decade this will be the the coming of age tale and so I'm actually not too worried. Whoever said that, I think we're past the point of banning it. I think that's actually true in America, at least. Mm. I think some states will fight back. I don't know what China's relationship with Bitcoin will be. but And also your point about innovation. The U.S. knows how much we benefit benefited from allowing innovation to occur uh, through the Internet, dot-com bubble. And we've heard politicians talk about this. We don't want to kick out the innovation. And they're right. Right, right now, America has a pretty sizable lead of innovation, um, although you could say it's declining, but certainly in Bitcoin, it's it's among the, the top. And so that's going to produce tremendous value for our country. And why would you want to kick that out? 
And now you go into a world where all these smaller nations are selling passports. You can move your whole family to Portugal or uh, the Bahamas for a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so the threat to leave is very high and it's very easy to get Bitcoin out of the country. And so from a government standpoint, if they sort of do their pros and cons thing here, or like a risk analysis, there's a lot more downside for them trying to ban Bitcoin than them trying to um, allow it to flourish. Now, they're going to try to sanitize it and the plebs will use app tokens, Fed tokens on their app, and they'll only be able to spend them at the right place or whatever. But the, the, the class of people who stores away some Bitcoin, I think they're going to have more optionality. They're going to be a little bit more anti-fragile. And I think that's all we need. Like, I don't want a war with the state. I want Bitcoin to just show its teeth and say, listen, you can try. We're going to fight back. And it's very costly for you to attempt this. And if you lose, it's total failure. Or you can kind of uh, extend a hand and let Bitcoin innovation flourish here. And great. Like that will be better for America if that happens. And I could see some sort of like um, nationalized mining or subsidized energy or something like that. I forgot um, who said this. Might have been, I don't know, someone, some, one of the regulatory bodies in the U.S. The guy essentially said China owns the hash power and that's kind of bad for America there's this new thing coming. We don't want China to get an advantage. And you could interpret that as he wants to ban Bitcoin because China owns it. Or you could interpret that as we need to get some hash power in America so that China doesn't own it. And so I think the competitive American spirit uh, might prevail here. Again, maybe I'm being optimistic, but I think people still have that spirit in them, even though the politics of the day is um, call each other comrades. Another interesting thing that came out of my conversation with Nick yesterday was the only thing that stops me putting more money into Bitcoin is the volatility. So what I tend to put in is is the money I don't need. I know I don't need over the kind of next you know, whatever period. I can't remember what I said. Say it was six months. I can't put that in because you know with running my business, I have operational costs. You know, I have uh, spikes in costs and dips in costs. So I need to keep at least six seven months. Yeah, in into the in on the books, everything else can go into Bitcoin. If Bitcoin, obviously, I like the volatility when it goes upwards; it's good for me. But generally speaking, if it was became more stable, um, there's actually a reason to put more of my money into Bitcoin. I, I just can't. But that gravitational effect will likely increase with time and more people coming in. That that presents a real problem for the government because it it dis, it starts to destroy. Um, the real value of their money and it then made me realize a couple of other things so so one of the other things was like um i talked about wanting to buy gold i actually wanted gold you know, i'm not one of these people who's like bitcoin's the best thing ever that's just shiny rocks they're bullshit but actually i realized why bitcoin is so superior to gold in the process of trying to buy gold firstly physically getting it was difficult but the bigger problem was was going to be selling it i had a real issue if i wanted to sell it because i don't have instant liquidity I can go online now and, and, and send some Bitcoin to exchange and I have instant liquidity. And then the next point that became really important is I realized how important the Lightning Network was. I was kind of recently a bit dismissive, thinking, don't think I'm going to use it. It's not that important. And now I realized it is. We just don't need it maybe for another five to ten years. So it can it, that can become battle-hardened. But at the point whereby you've got your money in Bitcoin and you don't want to take it out, but you want to spend it for whatever purpose, you need both the base chain and the Lightning Network. And all these things kind of started to kind of click into place. 
I'm with you on that one. And I think you, I want to underline one point you mentioned there, which is the reflexive nature of Bitcoin, meaning the larger Bitcoin becomes, the more demand there is for it. And right now, nation states can't, major nations, they couldn't really allocate to Bitcoin. They'd move the price too much. But we're going to have this cascade where the little guy gets to front run the big guy for the first time maybe ever in history. Then you're going to have increasingly um, larger organizations have the incentive to adopt it, which pushes the price up, which increases more FOMO. And then eventually, like you're saying, um, it's going to be in the best interest of smaller nations to allocate their some part of their balance sheet to Bitcoin. And when that happens, again, we've talked about this endlessly in Bitcoin land, but there will be some sort of game theory playing out where you don't want to be last. And mm -hmm. speaking to gold, yeah, I mean, Bitcoin's got its target set on gold. And I, I think that that's all but inevitable. It, it's a 100x improvement. The generational trends support this. Millennials don't want gold. It's very clear. It's cumbersome. And then you have this Bitcoin thing, all the young people get it immediately. Like for example, I, I onboarded, I've probably onboarded hundreds of people in my personal life to Bitcoin, but my my father-in-law, I helped him get set up with Swan and he's, he's stacking some Bitcoin and it was lots of conversations and all these concerns and how to do it. And you know, you're sort of hand-holding a boomer through this process. Now I, I get my nephew, I say, hey buddy, it's your birthday, I bought you some Bitcoin, download a wallet, send me your address. Within five minutes, he downloads the address, screenshots me a QR code, and he owns Bitcoin, and he gets it. Next time I see him, he's telling me about it, how it went up. And so the young people get it. Uh, gold's days are numbered. Now, it still could perform well in the short term. I assume that it will. But the long-term history is already written. Regarding the Lightning Network, I 100% agree. I, I don't see Bitcoin competing at the payments layer anytime soon, so why do I care? Like, I'm really glad people work on it. And the grand vision, which I heard from uh, Ryan Ryan Gentry or Gentry recently on Marty's show, that was a really mind blowing episode where he extrapolates on what it could be. And that got me super interesting, sort of like this. Um, I guess what's interesting to me about Lightning Network is we have the base protocol. That did the important thing. We separated money from state. That's the hard problem. Now anything after that is bonus, and it's in our best interest to try to create layers that reference the security model of Bitcoin censorship resistance and trustlessness, all that. So Lightning Network is our best thing so far that references Bitcoin's assumptions. That's, that's hugely important. And if Bitcoin does become this large value transfer, container ship, base layer, um, however you want to describe that, we're going to need a more sane approach. And Lightning Network will get smoothed out. It's very complicated, but that will be abstracted away. And so I'm with you, very recently became a lightning bull, not because I want to use it, but simply because it's it's growing, it's evolving, it's becoming better. A lot of smart people are flooding in. There's actually a ton of businesses and projects working on it, which I didn't even know. And mm. the final point um, I forgot to mention regarding reflexivity of the price is um, Brady from Citizen Bitcoin and Swan came up with a thread recently called HODL FOMO. And I thought this was interesting framing where in 2017, People are trying to buy Bitcoin so they can make money because it's going up. It's just a trade. Um, and now the store of value narrative is so clearly defined and also it's clearly needed. 2020, people are sort of uh, checking around, reassessing themselves. Who are they hanging out with? How do they do their finances? And all of a sudden, Bitcoin looks really good here and the narrative is strong. 
and the, the supply being fixed relative to the money printer, that's a nice juxtaposition. And so I think what's happening is the world's waking up to the fact that there's 21 million of these things and they better bury some in their backyard before they're gone. And so he calls it HODL FOMO and people, and you mm -hmm. can see it on the charts, people aren't putting, leaving Bitcoin on Coinbase. Large buyers are taking it off exchanges at an unprecedented rate. And what's gonna happen? We're gonna have no supply and then what? The, the biggest supply side liquidity crunch in human history. And so to me, 2020 changed everything. In, in 2019, I would have said $100,000 Bitcoin, $150,000 Bitcoin would be the peak of this next cycle because I didn't think it was as needed. Now in 2020, I think all bets are off. I am sympathetic mm -hmm. to the, this might be the big one or we won't see such volatile downside after this because it does serve a need. It's been de-risked. The big boys are buying it for long-term. They're not buying it to flip it for a Lambo. These guys are, are buying long-term because they understand it. And so I think humanity might have a little brush up with what scarcity means. And that's gonna be quite scary. Like I think the, yeah, the that, bear markets are easy. Bull markets yeah. are terrifying. Well, does that become an issue then? Because I mean, I, I'm with you on that. Somebody said to me, basically with Bitcoin, you have a score. And your score is the percentage of Bitcoin you own. Just figure out the percentage of the 21 million you own. That is your score. And you always want to increase your score. And I, look, I've given away so much Bitcoin and wasted so much. Like, it's ridiculous amount of time. It's like kind of depressing. But aside of that, do we potentially have an issue at some point where Bitcoin's too hard to get? People aren't willing to give it up? Does, does that itself present any kind of issue at some point? I, get, I guess... If we were, if we still have alternative currencies to use, that's fine because you, know, you can sell, you could sell it to use it, right? But if we ever got to a point whereby, you know, I'm just trying to figure this out in my head. You've probably been through this thought exercise. If we move to a Bitcoin-based society, well, then there will always be some because you have to spend it because you'll you'll have no alternative currency. Yeah, the way the way I think about this is, um, and I've had strangely that that points come up several times recently. But the way I see it is that. It's not like no one's going to get rid of their Bitcoin. Um, yeah. when, when I say supply uh, liquidity shock, I just mean that very few people are willing to sell at low prices. And so it's there's always going to be sellers, but they're going to be selling at really high prices because we have this future expected value going up. And so I'm not too worried about it, but what, what it really says is you're going to buy at the price you deserve and smart people are bearing it in their backyard now. Those days are limited. So fine, you can wait, right? Everyone's gonna have to inter interfa interface with Bitcoin. You can do that today, learn about it now when you're sort of ahead of the curve and great, you have a chance to benefit. Or you can wait five years and you'll you'll own Bitcoin, but you'll own it at a much higher price and you won't benefit from the price discovery as much. And then the next point, if we hyper Bitcoinize or it just becomes a larger part of the economy, people are still gonna pay people to do things, right? Like eventually Bitcoin will be less stable and it won't make sense to hold all your money there because you'll wanna see a higher return. Maybe Bitcoin grows at two, 3% a year, uh, more or less mirroring GDP. And then you wanna take some of that two, 3% yield and put that into a little bit riskier asset, like maybe you invest in a company again. And so yeah. I, I, don't, I don't see any uh, structural issues with this. I think the, the real issue will be uh, the people who get in early will have incredible wealth and some people will feel that that's unfair. And, you know, there's always winners and losers. Bitcoin is as fair as it possibly could be. 
um, it, it just has to do with, did you spend time understanding this thing? And to be fair, yeah. it's, I don't, I don't mean it like a grab yourself up by the bootstraps. Certain people are predisposed to understanding Bitcoin. And I kind of feel a responsibility working for a company who recruits Bitcoiners to Swan is to say things like, which type of people do we want to buy Bitcoin now? Right? Like I feel a responsibility to tell my friends and family they should own some of this. I feel very little responsibility to convince some dude I met in high school, you know? And so there's kind of that weird morality there where if we are right, um, we have a lot of influence in changing the people's lives around us. And so I, I think that's actually quite motivating. Um, get on the arc with your friends. But it is also, the responsibility is really weird because there's going to be people who don't benefit from this. And I'm not sure what that looks like. Mm. Well, I think some pe I think that puts people in a position of being a kind of disregarding Bitcoin a little bit. I think there's some people who dismiss it because it's been around them, but they've never really got in. I think some of the Bitcoin journalists, they kind of not the Bitcoin like in Bitcoin journalists, some of the journalists who cover Bitcoin seem to get saltier as Bitcoin increases in value and tend to enjoy writing the articles when the price drops. And I think there's that kind of like salty feeling of like I've always been around this. Shit, it was too much at $200, so I didn't. Oh, shit, it was too much at $1,200. Oh, shit, it's too much now at $20,000. And it just keeps going up and up and up and up and up, and they keep missing out. I think other people dismiss it because they just they just can't get their head around the idea. You know, like when I put stuff on Facebook, I put it all the time. I am, I am putting things I'm finding on Twitter and sharing it amongst my friends, and I still get, well, what is Bitcoin? Isn't that the same? I could tell you a list of the things that the questions are asking. People are still asking the same questions, and I'm desperately trying to onboard them. I'm desperately trying to say, you really need. You just. You should just get a little bit of this. <laughs> Couple of great points. One, the derangement syndrome, Bitcoin derangement yeah. syndrome. You know, you had a chance to buy at an earlier price, and you sort of in your mind create a mental anchor to that earlier price, and then feel like you missed it. And then you sort of resent Bitcoin for it. And yeah, then it kind of express it, expresses itself in weird ways. And, you know, the, the cyber hornets on Twitter like to pile on to people. But you see people doubling down on their ignorance to Bitcoin. And that that's happening all over the place. I think it's becoming easier to understand Bitcoin. But I think it's important to recognize that the first time you hear about Bitcoin, your initial reaction should be, that sounds like a scam. Or I don't think mm. that can work almost everyone that's their initial reaction like what do you mean some um, magic internet money run by computers is trying to overthrow dollars i'm 35 years old i know what money is and yeah. that's the natural response and so then you have to look at predispositions i think most people who got into bitcoin let's say before 2017 had an advantage somehow meaning they studied austrian economics they were in a country where the currency failed or any number of different things that would make understanding bitcoin easier maybe you're just a, a edge of the culture open-minded type person right any of those things can get you in early but i think what's interesting now is that uh, 2020 forced everybody to wake up and um, I've been doing an experiment on my personal Facebook where I'm just posting about Bitcoin a lot and people are starting to wake up and people who are hard nose are starting to get involved. And I think it's because they sense something's wrong with the money. And I think that's going to change now where Bitcoin is going to become a little bit easier to understand. There's this massive canon of education. Onboarding is going to be easier. We're not divided with uh, Bcash hard fork. 
And so the Cyber Hornets are going to be very ready to onboard this next wave. Undoubtedly, the wave will uh, swing super far forward. There'll be shitcoin pumps, so there'll be all this madness again. And then we'll have to train this new class on how to take a little bit more self-sovereignty, take those steps. And I think that's important too, in a sense. Like existing hodlers do need to protect their investment and protect the network by um, dragging the noobs forward. And it's hard, right? This is all new mm-hmm. stuff. Dude, listen, and it feels, I mean, I'm. I, when did you get in? Were you, you, you like class of 14? No, no, no. Um, I bumped into Bitcoin in 2011 when I was working nice. at Oracle, my first job out of college selling software. But it was, oh, look, friends can buy drugs on the internet with magic money. Well, that's yeah. cool. Didn't think anything of it. Uh, I wasn't really ready. I was just a corporate business guy. Um, yeah. Then I bumped into it again in 2014. I, I sort of rebelled against the corporate drone life and became like a hippie backpacker building online businesses and traveling for a few years. Uh, bumped into Bitcoin again. Okay, it's starting to make sense. But again, I wasn't ready. And then it wasn't until 2017, numbers going up. And I got dragged in from some friends. And then I was like, whoa, there's a lot here. Uh, and I bought into the whole blockchain, everything type narrative. And I decided to totally re-architect my life from corporate drone on one side over to like wellness, hippie, yoga, philosopher, entrepreneur to like somewhere in the middle, which I feel more aligned with Bitcoin. Like I think it suits my interests, my skill set, and it's a mission bigger than myself that I'm willing to fight for in a sense. And it makes me optimistic yeah. about the future. That's really interesting. So mine's, mine's similar-ish. I can't remember where I first heard of it, but I certainly didn't pay attention to it until 2013. I might, because I used to work in like a little bit tech internet stuff. I'm sure I heard it like mentioned or something, you know, but I never, mine was 2013 and it was because you could buy drugs on the internet. It was just like, literally I got a phone call from my friend. It was like, Pete, I found this website where you can, you can buy drugs online. It's like, what? So he showed me and I, you know, bought my first Bitcoin straight on there and it was fucking brilliant. And then I traded a bit Oh, but CFDs and made and lost a bunch of money and, and then then it crashed and I just thought it's dead it's dead and I mean I used to keep keep checking the price and it was dropping more and more and they kind of based out and then started to go up and I was thinking oh should I get back in and then I ignored it and and then I was the same like in the 16 start 17 I got back in because I had to get some bitcoin and then kind of stuck with it and it started to make more and more sense but where I'm going with this is this there's there's been a real shift in the last three to six months. I mean this let's let's go this last week alone. Ray Dalio saying online, I might have this wrong. Let's talk about this. These are my concerns. I mean, that's basically one step to okay, I'm fucking in. And he he will I'm almost certain he'll now he's now he's changed his mind, he's open to it. We also had Nuriel Rabini saying, eh, it might be a store of value. We've got we've had Paul Tudor, Paul Tudor Jones, we've had Drucker Miller, we've had Michael Saylor, we've had Square. I I get a lot of emails from listeners, dude, lots of fucking emails, and I'm having a lot of people who are saying I want to buy it for my company. Do you know how I could do it? I've had people who work at funds get in touch, say can we meet for a coffee? It's different this time. Whereas before, I guess 2017, it was like number grow up, let's ex- let's get excited, let's get involved. I think now feels a lot more the FOMO feels different the, I would say the FOMO 2017 is um I 
I don't want to miss. I don't want to miss out on gains. Here's some gains I can make. And I thought. I think some people may have gone in thinking I'm going to go in and out and make some money. Now I think this FOMO is slightly different. Is I don't want to be left behind. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that speaks to Brady's thesis of the HODL FOMO. He just tried to yeah. name what you just described. And I, th- and I think it's right. We're, we're seeing this uh, this Titanic hit an iceberg and it's going down and the central banks, they're playing the music, you know, no problem. And then smart people are trying to get the rest of the lifeboat and more and more people are doing that. And a guy like Dalio, um, well-respected, he's a titan no matter how you look at it. And he kept on writing his analysis the last two years. He was screaming for the need of Bitcoin, but he totally dismissed it. So he couldn't see the obvious thing that we're all like, dude. Um, But that's super common with Bitcoin, especially with smart people. And I wrote about this in my Mycelium of Money essay, where I essentially said understanding Bitcoin's hard and smart people, you look at it and you make these hasty assumptions and you think you have it figured out. Uh, it's not intuitive. It sounds like it's not going to work and it's complicated. And so people see that and they make up their mind, which is kind of like a false peak. You're climbing a mountain. You think you hit the top of the mountain and you walk a few more steps and you look and you go, oh, man, I'm not all the way there. I got to keep climbing. You climb up again, another false peak, and then you have to relearn and keep going. And I think assessing Bitcoins like that. And what Dalio just did was he sort of admitted publicly, at least, that he doesn't know Bitcoin as well as he thought he did. And like you mentioned, that's pretty much a guaranteed path to adopting. And I think that's a very interesting paradox with Bitcoin. People always say, hey, why are there no Bitcoin haters? There's no good critiques. There's the whiners, the deranged people, and then the people who have entrenched interests who are just sort of like lying to spill their narrative. But there's very few intelligent, thoughtful critiques of Bitcoin. And I wrote about this recently on Twitter or maybe a few months ago, but it's essentially the the paradox is that as soon as you understand Bitcoin, you are compelled to own some because it fundamentally is a useful asset for humanity. And as soon as that clicks, you buy it. Almost Mm -hmm. no one understands Bitcoin and doesn't own it unless they have some weird reason like the journalists want to keep a distance or whatever. And I think that incentive alone is all we need. And so it's sort of like, how long does it take until you understand that you need this and everyone's short Bitcoin and only 1% of us realize it? That's kind of how I see that. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we're seeing this all over the place. All the numbers are going up. All the Bitcoin startups built in the bear market are cruising, um, like River saying they're doing a great job, breaking all time highs. Swan's customers are just exponential recently. And so it's happening. My downloads. And yeah. Dude, listen. Are like, you seeing new people uh, come in? I, I sh- I'll show you a graph. Like, go on to, if you go to my website now, whatbitcoindid.com, right? Let me show you this. All right, which page? Right, see at the top, it says income reports. Yes. Right at the very top, you can see income reports, right? So I've, ever since I got my first check, I've done these income reports. So every month I just report all the stats of everything I'm doing. Click on October 20. Okay, let's see. Site is loading very slow. Scroll down and you'll see October downloads. Oh man, my internet is going so slow. But basically, so initial growth of my podcast was, you know, per month was up to around, as that? That's like March 19, I kind of have a peak. Then between March 19 and kind of May of this year, uh, no, July of this year, I was kind of just kind of like up and down, up and down, up and down. 
you know, I'd go up to 200000 down dollars. I'd come down to like one hundred and fifty, up and down, and then over the last three months, I went broke two fifty, and then I went to three twenty, three thirty, three forty thousand. Then I went to four sixty thousand, then four eighty thousand. So in the last three months, I've essentially doubled. And what's been really interesting is that. There's, I, I, there's a few you see, can you see the graph now yeah i'm on the graph it's actually very very yeah, yeah. impressive <laughs> yeah but but what's happened is like i'm still doing the same bloody job right but there's another indicator um i always say in my show if you want to get reach out to me here's my email address i respond to everyone i am getting five to ten emails a day it's people reaching out like Somebody is like, what do I do about security? Today, a guy, I've got, I want Bitcoin. I want to pay off my mortgage. Oh, where do I start? Like, I'm just getting so many. The indicators are that that it's happening now. There are more and more people coming in. And we're about to enter into that kind of crazy period again. I think it's, I think we're going to have a, I think all of next year, it's going to be super interesting. But it's, it's put me in that position now. I am very, very nervous to sell Bitcoin and feel like I always need more. And I'm certainly, sh- I'm short, I'm irresponsibly long Bitcoin, but at the same time, I feel like I'm irresponsibly long fiat still as well. I totally feel you on that one. Um, I own an online business that I essentially started when I left Oracle and was traveling. And it's essentially teaching business skills to wellness entrepreneurs, like teach a yoga teacher how to market themselves through online courses, stuff like that. And the business was great. Like it paid for my wife and I's life for five years and we could travel and do whatever we want. Um, Then I found Bitcoin, neglected the business. And I was like, okay, I can just keep the business and it just pays me cash every month for the rest of my life. I want that because it gives me freedom and it sort of allowed me to transition to this new career. Um, But now I'm sitting here going, before I was like, I want productive assets spitting out cash because I want my freedom. And now I'm going, oh man, I don't know if that business can provide the ROI that just turn selling the business and turning it all into Bitcoin immediately is worth. And so I feel the same thing. I keep a small cash balance for the short term, like you said, six months. Mm -hmm. Uh, But other than that, I'm buying Bitcoin. And now I'm like, what assets can I sell? And this nice one that provides freedom. Here I am trying to sell it and we'll see what happens with that. But I hear you, man. I feel short as well. I get it. I get it. It's it's funny. It's, it's, I was just thinking, uh, like, it's going through a, like idea in my head because I was thinking when you talked about about learning Bitcoin. Like, I am I am naturally a slow learner. Like, I am not. I've said it a million times. People get pissed off me saying, but I'm not technical and I don't understand economics the way other people naturally do. I'm a creative. You know, give me give me a give me a marketing campaign. I'm going to tell you how to do it. Give me a slogan to write. I'm. It's that's my bag. I am not technical. I'm not. A, economically minded so it just takes me longer so i'm quite dismissive so when i first discovered bitcoin i was like it's just funny internet money and then when i got into it again started doing the podcast and i'd hear people talk about hyper bitcoinization and in my mind i was thinking fuck off that's not gonna happen what you want about like uh, lots of different things like that and i think what it is it's a little bit like you know in bill and ted have you ever seen bill and ted the original oh uh, like bill and ted's excellent adventure or something like that yeah I, I they think go I back saw in time. A long time ago, I don't remember. But like, if you brought somebody from I don't know, Victorian times to now, right? Suddenly, cars everywhere, you know, mobile phones, technology. You know, that is such a shift from where they they were at that time. It's just such a huge shift for them. For them to comprehend the world we're in now, it doesn't make any sense. 
And I think what it is, is the smartest Bitcoiners out there are foreseeing a world that I just don't, I haven't had the ability to see. I'm like, no, we're always going to have government. Like, uh, I don't I don't see flying cars, right? I don't see the fifth element kind of future. I I see just incremental stages. But it is starting to make sense. Like these conversations like I had with Nick yesterday, the one I'm having with you now, I'm like, no, I, I get it now. I can see where it's going. But it's taken me a long time. Trying to trying to explain that to one of my like no coiner friends is close to fucking impossible. Hundred percent. I, I feel that so much because like my college friends, good buddies, I, I still hang out with them and we do awesome stuff. They're fantastic people. And they all own Bitcoin now because I badgered them enough. But when I start talking about how Bitcoin changes me or this community or how we're separating money from state or how, you know, you talk about these long historical trends, they're like, uh, no, I, I view Bitcoin as some uh, like a stock that goes up, you crazy person. And I think most people are, are in that that same position, like you mentioned. And I think it points something unique to sort of like look at Bitcoiners and say, who are they? What's the Venn diagram or the overlaps that we can say are, are similar about Bitcoiners? And the obvious ones are at least using Twitter as a representative sample, which may or may not be good. Um, they're autodidacts. So they like to learn. They're curious. They have lots of different specialties because they're curious. It's almost like um, they want to learn it for themselves. They want to think through all the problems themselves. I definitely feel that way. And so you kind of have this first principles, polymathic type people. So they're ready to conquer this hard intellectual challenge, more ready than the average person. Also, they're disagreeable, um, like personality trait disagreeable, meaning that they're comfortable going against the grain. And evolutionarily, that's a recessive trait for humans because we grew up, our DNA is essentially forged through small hunter-gatherer tribes. And like you mentioned earlier, if you're on your own, you die. And so we must seek approval from our peers because if we're not in the group, we die. And so that's, we carry that programming with us today. And so most people follow culture kind of like a sheep. And then you have people on the fringe who are exploring and they're not, they're comfortable not being part of the in-group. And those are the type of people who find themselves to Bitcoin. It also lends itself to amazing disagreements and fights on Twitter. We sort of sharpen each other's tool. We over-index with our yeah. strong opinions. And yeah, there's some consequences to that. Um, but it, I think it's quite interesting mm -hmm. to say that's who Bitcoiners are. Um, each cycle, it becomes more sanitized, more normalized, because the surface area of the hodler base can now infiltrate more normie culture. Right. Like uh, someone in 2020 who onboards to Bitcoin is not going to listen to the 2019 or sorry, 2011 to 2013 class. They're, they're not the same type of people. But the 2017 class, they can start to infiltrate the normie scene. And so I think it's going to be easier and easier to get the message. It gets more gentrified or sanitized. Um, and then it brings me up to this interesting idea of if we if we're right, there's going to be a massive wealth transfer here. And it's away from mm -hmm. the institutions and the entrenchments. And it's towards this curious, new, excited, also optimistic class of people, also paranoid, whatever we can describe them as. But that wealth transfer is going to happen if we're right. And to me, I would much rather have people who I believe earned it have the money so then they can allocate capital in a way that um, is not influenced by the politics of the day. I'd rather have a first principles hard leader who makes hard decisions, even if it's not popular, because it's right and good and just, I'd rather have that group allocating capital. 
uh, at a higher rate than the people who got their position by, um, you know, sucking at the teat of the state or their families were wealthy for generations or, or some other um, sort of unfair advantage. And so I think Bitcoin does level the playing field and we will allocate capital better in that world. Um, and so to me, that's an optimistic future, even though obviously the transition might be chaotic. Well, this has been a great follow up to my interview with Nick yesterday. I knew we would go on for more than an hour. I, I pr probably could go on much longer. Have, is there anything I've not asked you yet? Because this is honestly, it's been a really fascinating interview. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you wish I had? I mean, I honestly think we could go for five more hours and um, we have lots of things to talk about. Um, nothing's initially come into mind. Yeah, I think it's one of these ones. I think I need to go away and di like I say, it takes me a bit longer because I'm more creative minded. I, I just I think I need to go away and digest this a bit more because this interview and the one I did with Nick yesterday, they've really shifted me. It's almost like it's like my, my personal halving. <laughs> like I've, I've suddenly just had a step change realization that I've been wrong about a bunch of things. Like just like I said, yesterday in terms of the lightning network, I realized how important it was today with this. I've realized how important privacy is where I didn't actually give too much of a fuck. I kind of like now I understand just a bit more about how more how important privacy is. Now I understand a step change again, understanding how actually I never think thought you could destroy the state with Bitcoin, but actually you could. And it, it maybe isn't that it's going out to destroy the state. The, the state just naturally has to shrink because because the money's moving into Bitcoin and they have less access to it and they can't print it. Uh and it just, these things just take me a little bit longer. So I, I think I need to go away and digest it. But I want to do this again. Um, I'd, hope, I'd hope we can do it in person if we can all get vaccines. But um, yeah, I think we should do, I think we need to do a follow-up. I, I, I think I need my next round of questions. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, I really appreciate the time, Peter. I thought this was a fun conversation and I love wrestling with these ideas and I've been on a few shows recently discussing it. And this one felt unique. And so I thought that's pretty cool. Um, one final point based on what you just said which is there's these step funk changes, step, step function changes mm. over time. Um, that seems to be a principle in nature. Um, I think some people have described right. it as punctuated equilibrium. And we have common phrases like there's um, decades where nothing happens and there's weeks where decade happens. And so it's part of our yeah. cultural wisdom that this happens. And yeah, 2020 is just one of those moments where everything's happening at once. And you know this can happen in your intellectual learning you read, you read five books in a row and then one sentence changes your life. And so how do we optimize for those insights? It's like the 80-20 the rule of, of up-leveling yourself or, or any principle in nature. And I'm, I'm a voracious reader, learner, and trying to jam mental models into my head all the time type thing. And so uh, happy to hear that the, the fourth turning thesis crossed the barrier a little bit. Um, there's a lot more to this thesis that I think you will appreciate and you will get it. It's superhuman. And I think you grasp those things better than most people. And so read the essay and I think you might be, um, you might get deep into this. No, I will do. I think what I'll do actually, I think I, I think I need to find the time. I think I need to read the sovereign individual and the fourth turning. And then as I'm reading them, keep my notes and then do a follow up. Cause I think, yeah, I just like I say, I I think I'm I take a bit longer than other sometimes other people, I, and I know I'm not the only one. I I know people who listen to the show they always write to me and they they appreciate the questions because I think there are other people who who don't click. Well, we know people don't get it straight away because we know how difficult it is to try and convince our friends. Like I know if I I know what happens is when this lockdown ends, I'm going to sit down in the pub and try and say to my friends they're going to be like, yeah, bollocks, Pete. The, the, but but 
I know there are other people like this, but uh, no, I appreciate your time. I, I've loved this. It's, it's, I, I love the interviews where I sometimes struggle to articulate my questions because my mind is working as I'm, as I'm going through it. I'm kind of like, I'm realizing that I'm having a step change myself. And, you know, I had that today with you and I had that uh, yesterday with Nick. So that's, uh, I'm really happy about that. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point. Uh, if you're, if it's super scripted, you kind of know the points we're both trying to get out. That's fine, right? You can convey information effectively that way. But I'm with you. I think the most interesting conversations are when both parties are stretched to the, the limits intellectually and we're forced to sort of uh, adapt and have a symbiotic conversation where you say something that changes me and I change you and it you sort of go back and forth and mm. that's where insights come out and then you get off the podcast you're like whoa whoa where am I I got to re-listen to that because we came out with novel insights on the call that I didn't intend on and so <laughs> Dude, yeah man I'm, I'm coming off this gun I need more fucking bitcoin how do I get more bitcoin right which one of my children can I sell <laughs> kind of like them both no I'm only kidding someone's gonna write to me and go you can't fucking do that <laughs> They'll listen. They'll be upset. But uh, no, I love this, man. Listen, let's definitely do this again. Let's do it again sometime in the new year. Let me get through those books. Let's get together. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. And I really appreciate your time and, and really glad we finally did this. Likewise. Yeah, appreciate it, Peter. Thanks for doing what you're doing. All right. What do you think of that one? Another beast, right? Another really, really great show. So many great guests at the moment. I've got to say it. There's so many Bitcoin podcasts out there and we've got a lot of great people going out, spreading the knowledge, spreading the education. Just a big shout out to them for all doing this. Now, along with my previous show with Nick Batia, this was a real eye opener for me. Loads of things that I've been talking to people about the last couple of years are starting to fall into place like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, I take a bit longer to make a jigsaw puzzle than other people. My mum was really good at it. My mum was brilliant at jigsaw puzzles. I just take a little bit longer. Things like hyper Bitcoinization. It just seems like, yeah, come on, man. Like, I get it. I get the dream. But come on, man. But now I can see it. Like, having done the show with Nick and the show with Brandon, I see the role Bitcoin is going to play. And I have more conviction. No, it's not going to be easy. No, it's not going to be definite. But I really, really get it now. So I need to read these books. Christmas is coming. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to read The Fourth Turning. I'm going to read The Sovereign Individual too. Anyway, thanks for listening. I do love you all. If you do want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to everyone. And listen, if you want to support the show, you've heard this every week. And if you're listening every week and you haven't left me a review on iTunes, come on, it's Thanksgiving. Also, Christmas is coming. Go up there, leave me a review. If you think it deserves five stars, amazing. If you think the show is shit and will give me one star, hopefully you don't. But those reviews are really, really helpful. Outside of that, on Defiance, um, the next episode of Chaos has been delayed a week. We're just trying to land an interview that's going to make that a more special show. But to tie things over, as Bitcoin is mooning and I've got a bunch of new listeners on Defiance, we've released an old VJ Boyapati interview, The British Case of Bitcoin. Go and check that out if you've never heard it. Anyway, have a great weekend. Love you all, and I'll see you all next week.